0: Chapter 24, Part 9 of Volume 3 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 3 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 24 The Hundred Years' War. Charles the Seventh and Joan of Arc, fourteen twenty two to fourteen sixty two, part nine. But for all their rejoicing at the peace, the French king, lords, and commons had war still in their hearts, national feelings were waking up afresh, the successes of late years had revived their hopes, and the civil dissensions which were at that time disturbing England let favorable chances peep out. Charles the Seventh and his advisers employed the leisure afforded by the truce in preparing for a renewal of the struggle. They were the first to begin it again, and from 1449 to 1451 it was pursued by the French king and nation with ever-increasing ardor, and with obstinate courage by the veteran English warriors astounded at no longer being victorious. Normandy and Aquitaine, which was beginning to be called Guyenne only, were throughout this period the constant and the chief theatre of war. Amongst the greatest number of fights and incidents which distinguished the three campaigns in those two provinces, the recapture of Rouen by de in October 1449, the Battle of Formigny, won near Bayeux on the 15th of April, 1450, by the constable de Richemont, and the twofold capitulation of Bordeaux, first on the 28th of June, 1451, and next on the ninth of october fourteen fifty three, in order to submit to Charles the seventh, are the only events to which a place in history is due, for those were the days on which the question was solved touching the independence of the nation and the kingship in France. The Duke of Somerset and Lord Talbot were commanding in Rouen when Denois presented himself beneath its walls, in hopes that the inhabitants would open the gates to him. Some Burgesses, indeed, had him apprised of a certain point in the walls at which they might be able to favour the entry of the French. Dunois, at the same time making a feint of attacking in another quarter, arrived at the spot indicated with four thousand men. The archers drew up before the wall, the men-at-arms dismounted, the Burgesses gave the signal, and the planting of scaling-ladders began, but when hardly as many as fifty or sixty men had reached the top of the wall, the banner and troops of Talbot were seen advancing. He had been warned in time, and had taken his measures. The assailants were repulsed, and Charles the Seventh, who was just arriving at the camp, seeing the abortiveness of the attempt, went back to pont de la But the English had no long joy of their success. They were too weak to make any effectual resistance, and they had no hope of any aid from England. Their leaders authorized the Burgesses to demand of the king a safe conduct in order to treat— The conditions offered by Charles were agreeable to the Burgesses, but not to the English, and when the archbishop read them out in the hall of the mansion-house, Somerset and Talbot witnessed an outburst of joy which revealed to them all their peril. Faggots and benches at once began to rain down from the windows. The English shut themselves up precipitately in the castle, in the gate-towers, and in the great tower of the bridge, and the Burgesses armed themselves and took possession during the night of the streets and the walls. Dunois, having received notice, arrived in force at the Martinville gate. The inhabitants begged him to march into the city as many men as he pleased. It shall be as you will," said Dunois. Three hundred men at arms and archers seemed sufficient. Charles the Seventh returned before Rouen. The English asked leave to withdraw without any loss of life or kit, and on condition, said the king, that they take nothing on the march without paying. "'We have not the wherewithal,' they answered, and the king gave them a hundred francs. Negotiations were recommenced. The king required that Harfleur and all the places in the district of Cauch should be given up to him. "'Ah, as for Harfleur, that cannot be,' said the duke of Somerset. "'It is the first town which surrendered to our glorious king, Henry V, thirty-five years ago. There was further parley. The French consented to give up the demand for Harfleur but they required that Talbot should remain as hostage until the conditions were fulfilled. The English protested. At last, however, they yielded, and undertook to pay fifty thousand golden crowns to settle all accounts which they owed to the tradesmen in the city, and to give up all places in the district of Cain except Harfleur. The Duchess of Somerset and Lord Talbot remained as hostages, and on the 10th of November, 1449, Charles entered Rouen in state with the character of a victor who knew how to use victory with moderation. The Battle of Formigny was at first very doubtful. In order to get from Vallon to Bayeux and Caen, the English had to cross at the mouth of the Vire great sands which were passable only at low tide. A weak body of French under command of the Count de Clermont had orders to cut them off from this passage. The English, however, succeeded in forcing it, but just as they were taking position, with the village of Formigny to cover their rear, the constable de Richemont was seen coming up with three thousand men in fine order. The English were already strongly entrenched when the battle began. "'Let us go and look close at their faces, admiral,' said the constable, sieur de Cotteville. "'I doubt whether they will leave their entrenchments,' replied the admiral. "'I vow to God that, with his grace, they will not abide in them,' rejoined the constable, and he gave orders for the most vigorous assault.' It lasted nearly three hours. The English were forced to fly at three points, and lost thirty-seven hundred men. Several of their leaders were made prisoners. Those who were left retired in good order. Bayeux, Avranches, Caen, Falaise, and Cherbourg fell one after the other into the hands of Charles the Seventh. and by the end of August 1450 the whole of Normandy had been completely won back by France. The conquest of Guyenne, which was undertaken immediately after that of Normandy, was at the outset more easy and more speedy. Amongst the lords of southern France, several hardy patriots, such as John of Blois, Count of Perigord, and Arnold Amenot, sire d'Albert, of their own accord began the strife, and on the 1st of November, 1450, inflicted a somewhat severe reverse upon the English near Blancfort. In the spring of the following year Charles Seventh authorized the Count of Armagnac to take the field, and sent Denois to assume the command-in-chief. An army of twenty thousand men mustered under his orders, and in the course of May, 1451, some of the principal places of Guyenne, such as saint amilion, Blaye, Fronsac, Bourg-en-Mer, Libourne, and Dax, were taken by assault or capitulated. Bordeaux and Bayonne held out for some weeks, But on the 12th of June a treaty concluded between the Bordelese and Dunois secured to the three estates of the district the liberties and privileges which they had enjoyed under English supremacy, and it was further stipulated that, if by the 24th of June the city had not been succored by English forces, the estates of Guyenne should recognize the sovereignty of King Charles. When the 24th of June came, a herald went up to one of the towers of the castle and shouted, Succor from the King of England for them of Bordeaux. None replied to this appeal, so Bordeaux surrendered, and on the 29th of June Dunois took possession of it in the name of the King of France. The siege of Bayonne, which was begun on the 6th of August, came to an end on the 20th by means of a similar treaty. Guyenne was thus completely won. But the English still had a considerable following there. They had held it for three centuries, and they had always treated it well in respect of local liberties, agriculture, and commerce. Charles the Seventh, on recovering it, was less wise. He determined to establish there forthwith the taxes, the laws, and the whole regiment of northern France, and the Bordelese were as prompt in protesting against these measures as the king was in employing them. In August 1452, a deputation from the three estates of the province waited upon Charles at Bourges, but did not obtain their demands. On their return to Bordeaux, an insurrection was organized, and Peter de Montferrand, sire de Lespar, repaired to London and proposed to the English government to resume possession of Guyenne. On the 22nd of October, 1452, Talbot appeared before Bordeaux with a body of five thousand men. The inhabitants opened their gates to him, and he installed himself there as lieutenant of the King of England, Henry the Sixth. Nearly all the places in the neighbourhood, with the exception of Bourg and Bly, returned beneath the sway of the English. Considerable reinforcements were sent to Talbot from England, and at the same time an English fleet threatened the coast of Normandy. But Charles the Seventh was no longer the blind and indolent king he had been in his youth, nor can the prompt and effectual energy he displayed in fourteen fifty three be any longer attributed to the influence of Agnes Sorel, for she died on the ninth of February fourteen fifty. Charles left Richmond and Dunois to hold Normandy and in the early days of spring moved in person to the south of France with a strong army and the principal Gascon lords who two years previously had brought Guyenne back under his power. On the 2nd of June, 1453, he opened the campaign at St. John d'Angely. Several places surrendered to him as soon as he appeared before their walls, and on the 13th of July he laid siege to Castillon on the Dordogne, which had shortly before fallen into the hands of the English. The Bordelese grew alarmed, and urged Talbot to oppose the advance of the French. "'We may very well let them come nearer yet,' said the old warrior, then eighty years of age. "'Rest assured that, if it please God, I will fulfill my promise when I see that the time and the hour have come.' On the night between the 16th and 17th of July, however, Talbot set out with his troops to raise the siege of Castillon. He marched all night, and came suddenly in the early morning upon the French archers, quartered in an abbey who formed the advance-guard of their army, which was strongly entrenched before the place. A panic set in amongst this small body, and some of them took to flight. "'Ha! you would desert me, then?' said Sire de Renault, who was in command of them. "'Have I not promised you to live and die with you?' They thereupon rallied and managed to join the camp. Talbot, content for the time with this petty success, sent for a chaplain to come and say Mass, and whilst waiting for an opportunity to resume the fight, he permitted the tapping of some casks of wine which had been found in the abbey, and his men set themselves to drinking. A countryman of those parts came hurrying up, and said to Talbot, "'My lord, the French are deserting their park and taking to flight. Now or never is the hour for fulfilling your promise.' Talbot arose and left the mass, shouting, "'Never may I hear mass again if I put not to rout the French who are in yonder park.' When he arrived in front of the Frenchman's entrenchment, My lord, said Sir Thomas Cunningham, an aged gentleman who had for a long time past been his standard-bearer, they have made a false report to you. Observe the depth of the ditch and the faces of yonder men. They don't look like retreating. My opinion is that for the present we should turn back. The country is for us. We have no lack of provisions, and with a little patience we shall starve out the French. Talbot flew into a passion, gave Sir Thomas a sword-cut across the face. "'had his banner planted on the edge of the ditch, and began the attack. "'The banner was torn down, and Sir Thomas Cunningham killed. "'Dismount!' shouted Talbot to his men-at-arms, English and Gascon. "'The French camp was defended by a more than usually strong artillery, "'a body of Bretons, held in reserve, "'advanced to sustain the shock of the English, "'and a shot from a culverin struck Talbot, "'who was already wounded in the face, "'shattering his thigh, and brought him to the ground.' "'Lord Lyle, his son, flew to raise him. "'Let me be,' said Talbot. "'The day is the enemy's. "'It will be no shame for thee to fly, "'for this is thy first battle.' "'But the son remained with his father, "'and was slain at his side. "'The defeat of the English was complete. "'Talbot's body, pierced with wounds, "'was left on the field of battle. "'He was so disfigured that, "'when the dead were removed, "'he was not recognized. "'Notice, however, was taken of an old man "'wearing a cuirass covered with red velvet.' This, it was presumed, was he, and he was placed upon a shield and carried into the camp. An English herald came with a request that he might look for Lord Talbot's body. "'Would you know him?' he was asked. "'Take me to see him,' joyfully answered the poor servant, thinking that his master was a prisoner and alive. When he saw him, he hesitated to identify him. He knelt down, put his finger in the mouth of the corpse, and recognized Talbot by the loss of a molar tooth throwing off immediately his coat of arms with the colors and bearings of Talbot. Ah, my lord and master, he cried, can this be verily you? May God forgive your sins. For forty years and more have I been your officer at arms and worn your livery, and thus I give it back to you. And he covered with his coat of arms the stark-stripped body of the old hero. The English being beaten and Talbot dead, Castillon surrendered, and at unequal intervals Liborne, Saint-Amignon, Neuf de medoc blankfort saint macaire cadillac and etc followed the example at the commencement of october fourteen fifty three bordeaux alone was still holding out the promoters of the insurrection which had been concerted with the english amongst others sire de duras and lespar protracted their resistance rather in their own self-defence than in response to the wishes of the population The king's artillery threatened the place by land, and by sea a king's fleet from Rochelle and the ports of Brittany blockaded the Gironde. The majority of the king's officers, says the contemporary historian Thomas Bazin, advised him to punish, by at least the destruction of their walls, the Bordelese who had recalled the English to their city. But Charles, more merciful and more soft-hearted, refused. He confined himself to withdrawing from Bordeaux her municipal privileges, which, however, she soon partially recovered, and to imposing upon her a fine of a hundred thousand gold crowns, afterwards reduced to thirty thousand. He caused to be built at the expense of the city two fortresses, Fort of the Illa and the Castle of Trompette, to keep in check so bold and fickle a population, and an amnesty was proclaimed for all but twenty specified persons who were banished. On these conditions the capitulation was concluded and signed on the seventeenth of October. The English re-embarked, and Charles, without entering Bordeaux, returned to Touraine. The English had no longer any possession in France, but Calais and Gynes. The Hundred Years' War was over. And to whom was the glory? Charles Seventh himself decided the question. When, in 1455, twenty-four years after the death of Joan of Arc, he at Rome and at Rouen prosecuted her claims for restoration of her character, and did for her fame and her memory all that was still possible, He was but relieving his conscience from a load of ingratitude and remorse, which in general weighs lightly upon men, and especially upon kings. And he was discharging towards the maid of Domremy the debt due by the French and the French kingship, when he thus proclaimed that to Joan above all they owed their deliverance and their independence. Before men and before God Charles was justified in so thinking. The moral are not the soul, but they are the most powerful forces which decide the fates of people, and Joan had roused the feelings of the soul, and given to the struggles between France and England its religious and national character. At Rheims, when she repaired thither for the king's coronation, she said of her own banner, "'It has a right to the honour, for it has been at the pains. She, first amongst all, had a right to the glory, for she had been the first to contribute to the success. Next to Joan of Arc, the constable de Richemont was the most effective and the most glorious among the liberators of France and of the king. He was a strict and stern warrior, unscrupulous and pitiless towards his enemies, especially towards such as he despised, severe in regard to himself, dignified in his manners, never guilty of swearing himself, and punishing swearing as a breach of discipline amongst the troops placed under his orders. Like a true patriot and a royalist, he had more at heart his duty towards France and the king than he had his own personal interests. He was fond of war, and conducted it bravely and skillfully, without rashness but without timidity. "'Wherever the constable is,' said Charles Seventh, "'there I am free from anxiety. He will do all that is possible.' He set his title and office of constable of France above his rank as a great lord, and when, after the death of his brother, Duke Peter II, he himself became Duke of Brittany, he always had the constable's sword carried before him, saying, I wish to honor in my old age a function which did me honor in my youth. His good services were not confined to the wars of his time. He was one of the principal reformers of the military system in France, by the substitution of regular troops for feudal service. He has not obtained, it is to be feared, in the history of the fifteenth century, the place which properly belongs to him. To la Hire. Zantray and marshals de Boussac and de Lafayette were, under Charles Seventh, brilliant warriors and useful servants of the King and of France. But in spite of their knightly renown, it is questionable if they can be reckoned, like the constable de Richemont, amongst the liberators of national independence. There are degrees of glory, and it is the duty of history not to distribute it too readily and, as it were, by handfuls. End of chapter 24, part 9